Welcome everyone to the Higher Ed Happy Hour, the long delayed Higher Ed Happy Hour. It has been, how long has it been, Andrew, since our last month? Gosh, two months it's at least, months, right? Um, hi, I'm Kevin Carey uh, from New America. I'm joined here today by Andrew Kelly from the American Enterprise Institute. Not joined by our normal partner in crime, Libby Nelson from Vox.com, who is uh, just emailed us a few minutes ago to say that she is on an Amtrak train that has been delayed. I think that's probably true, although I have to say... I'm pretty sure that there are like a lot of jobs in Washington where you could move to another country and just tell people I'm delayed on Amtrak for months, if not years, and people would believe you and probably keep paying you. My instant reaction to it was I am shocked that the email got through. And then I was like, you know what? That The, the fact the email got through leads me to be a little bit more distrustful of the narrative. But Having dealt with... Amtrak internet. But maybe she's just on her cell phone. Uh, that's true. Yeah. But I didn't see like a sent from my iPhone oh, tag. Okay. Yeah. If she, yeah. If she's alleging that she's using <laughs> Amtrak internet, that's a, you know, I would say, so like, again, your, your Amtrak payroll fraud people would use that to their advantage. Why didn't you tell me that you were uh, stuck on Amtrak yesterday when you didn't come to the office? I tried to, I tried. but the Amtrak uh, internet was down and people would say, of course it was. Yeah. So it is, in fact, it is the perfect, perfect excuse. It should be called Amtrak disconnect. Um, yeah. that's basically what we, what it is. It's like, um, it is the most cost effective way of, uh, antagonizing the people who are in charge of all the money and political power in America. Yeah. Like just those people by having shitty Amtrak. Um, yeah. Yeah. Sh- shitty Wi-Fi on Amtrak. Yeah. Well, my wife was stuck on train once that started going the opposite direction for like 45 minutes, which is never a good feeling. You're sort of like, wait, we're on purpose. Yeah, we're not. Ma- we're not. We're not only are we not making right. progress. We're we're making negative progress away from our target. Uh-oh. That's sad. That would be kind of <laughs> horrible. Uh-oh. Some switch was broken yeah. or something or other. But yeah, that was a lot of phone calls and text messages. Yeah. Um, so anyway, Libby, so wherever you are. Yeah, we miss you. Hope you're um, hitting the bar car. Yeah, probably writing a two thousand word piece for a box or something like that with their crazy, crazy. Um, Crazy, crazy uh, word requirements. I was actually at their headquarters last week. Have you ever been there? No. I was over there because I uh, I was getting some excess Soylent from Dylan Matthews because Dylan Matthews had written a long thing about Soylent, you know, this like fake food, and he didn't like it. And so he put a Twitter thing out saying anyone who wants some can have some. And I said, sure. So I came by to get Dylan's excess Soylent and I had a chance to see Libby's office. By the way, any of you people who are like complaining about the size of your offices, the people at Vox just have like small, like four square foot on a random desk somewhere as their <laughs> office. Like that is the future of the Touchdown. workplace. Touchdown space. Um, there's no, there's no walls. There's no nothing, you know, not just the interns like Libby, Dylan. I mean, you could like, you could fit both of them comfortably into two corners of my office. And um, it, it fits with their with their very egalitarian view of the world. I guess that's right. Although there were there were kind of <laughs> I didn't for, you know maybe I didn't see Ezra Klein's palatial suite or right. something like that. Right. Um, there's an ironic foosball table in the lobby. I think that's just m- there to kind of collecting dust and yeah. cobwebs. But yeah. I did see so I I randomly saw Matt Chingos, um, uh, formerly at Brookings, now at Urban. Urban, Urban, Urban yeah. Um, who had somewhat who had lent Libby his. Uh, uh, turkey roasting pan like two years ago and she Correct. would never give it back to him and he was there getting it back like for real I actually saw the pan the same day I saw I, like I was just walking out and there was Matt Chingos with the pan the was this one of those like pan. this was one of those like like North Korean organized visits to Vox where they were like would, maybe right <laughs> we're gonna you know? invite everyone that has like a reason a, to come today <laughs> yeah I don't know maybe it was uh, it was what does that make him a Potemkin Chingos or something like that we'll hide the we'll hide the chimpanzees in front of the t- typewriters right 
They're churning out all of our, I, Maybe. tongue-in-cheek, tongue-in-cheek. It looked just exactly how I thought Vox.com would look. I mean, the people looked the same. I couldn't, I mean, not the same. The people looked just how I thought they would look. It looked, you know, it was furnished exactly the same way. Everyone seemed to be the right age between 25 and 35 or... Did you get a lot of things explained to you while you were there? No, no one explained anything. Everyone was busy, busy, not making eye contact with their headphones on, pecking, ah. away, pecking away at their late model Macintosh computers and their tiny desk space. Nice. Um, surrounded by books and like Star Wars figures and stuff like that. So The world of content generation. Yeah, it is. It is. Um, so anyway, uh, Andrew and I are going to soldier on in Libby's absence today. Um, we will try not to argue about politics. Um, uh, um, we are drinking um, Noah's Mill Genuine Bourbon Whiskey, handmade in the hills of Kentucky. Uh, longtime higher ed happy hour listeners will know that this is the second time that we have hit the bottle of Noah's Mill. It's the same bottle. Um, the reason is because we are moving out of our offices here at New America Foundation, New America, sorry, um, uh, at 1899 L Street in Washington, D.C., and moving in two weeks to new offices at 15th and 8th Street here in Washington, D.C. Um, and so everything is in a state of semi-packing, including all of my stuff. And so I figured rather than accumulate more bottles of liquor that I would then have to not, I don't think the movers will move them. Um, we would go through the accumulated stores of liquor. And so we're hitting the nose mill again, but always a reason to nose mill is my favorite kind of bourbon. It is very, very tasty. It's a repeat, but not very a repeat of the content. Yeah. Right. No, it's all new content. Um, so content wise, uh, we talked ahead of time. We've decided not to debate the relative merits of the, uh, huge Bernie Sanders giveaway plan versus the huge Hillary Clinton higher education <laughs> giveaway plan. We probably ought to at some point, um, since it is kind of interesting to be in this like cultural moment where. You turn on the presidential debate and like literally the first thing people say is college should be cheaper and you turn on Saturday Night Live and like it's part of comedy now, right? You know, like the, did you see the Larry David is, is Bernie Sanders? Thing? No. It's, so Larry David. I've seen doing, it tweeted yeah, so around. He's like, that he's was like, one of my instant break up the banks into tiny pieces and use the tiny pieces to make college free for everyone. <laughs> Boom. America saved. And, which is not in any way a mischaracterization or even an exaggeration, I think, of what the actual Bernie Sanders platform is. I just like the whole, like in the run up to the debate, there was this sort of um, short discussion about whose plan, you know, how one plan was so much more fiscally responsible than the other. Yeah, I don't, it's funny. It's, it's, it's kind of, all right, so now I guess we are talking about it. Yeah. It's, it's like somehow the it's come down to like as if there's this big difference between them because, you know, Hillary Clinton wants people to work 10 hours a week and Bernie Sanders says it. they're really not that different from and pay something you know, I mean, Hillary wants people to pay something in some other ways you know I mean well what's funny about the Hillary plan and we are talking about it here we are but is that like you read it carefully right and the and there's sort of like there's a baseline of oh yeah well community college will be free we're just gonna put right. that there right yeah. which was like six months ago that was like an incredibly radical I expensive know, idea right? now right. that's the baseline right, right. And and it's but four years. Let's get serious. We're gonna have a, we're gonna have a revised EFC and um and we're gonna have you know so rich families will pay something um which you know whatever I think that's that's you know if we're if we're talk if we're gonna like talk about two bad plans right that's that's le less bad is for, from a from a uh, efficiency perspective sure if it, like I mean I, I mean I so I'll just say I think uh, I guess we're talking about them let's do it um, <laughs> and then we'll get to the college scorecard. Um, I mean, I like both the plans in like lots of ways, uh, and have said so. I don't like the the sort of the the uh, parts of the Bernie Sanders plan, which is the things you have to do in order to receive this huge amount, this huge bounty of new federal money. Um, and I wrote about this in the Chronicle of Higher Education over the summer. 
because it's this kind of almost bizarrely retrograde uh, notion of what college is. It basically says, if you want this money, you have to hire more tenure professors and give them like better offices, yep. which is just so, so strange and wrong to kind of double down on this old, old labor model. Right. I mean, it's not just when your primary be... electorate is and those I, people. So I said, I said, I said in my column, I said, it's as if Bernie Sanders said to himself, you know, who, what is the special interest group that is most like me? And he said, it's aggrieved academics and I'm going to pander to them, which is kind of charming because of course it's a very, very small part of the electorate and they were all going to vote Democrat anyway. Um, anyway, so I wrote this thing saying this part's kind of silly, and, and I did. I felt the wrath of the of the the Bernie people. Oh, I'm sure. Right away. Yeah. Like, oh, how can you say that? And like the I, I I was yelled at by the kind of people who use the phrase corporate paymaster unironically. Mm -hmm. There are, are people like that, as it turns out. I thought that had long since become a joke. Oh but yeah. No. yeah. No, no, no. There are people who say that for real. Your corporate paymasters. Um, yeah. I mean, well, let's like let's be clear though. Like that, both of them. Both of them contain lots of prescriptions as to what you'd have to do to get this money. Well, for the states, right? But should, but shouldn't there be no that? also I no mean, also for the institutions, right? I right. mean, um, uh, you know, implementing various things, uh, evidence based strategies, and so on, right? I and and I just think like you know, to me, I just we've seen this play out over and over again. I, I and I know you have different thoughts on NCLB mm -hmm. than mine, but um, you know, it's been it's been really really difficult to get schools to change the way they do things in return for money um and it's been and it's been even more difficult to ever claw the money back if they don't change in the way you'd like them to but i do think that you can make states do things in exchange for money so so yeah i feel like if what you want to do is leverage how people choose to run organizations and you have some vision of like what an effective educational organization is and you're like here's some money but only if you agree to the following list of like enumerated behaviors which i think is the behavior i the law writer think are the characteristics of a good school slash college is that like does that work no that doesn't work at all but what you can do is make states spend money on stuff so yeah so 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 that so in that case then then you're suggesting that the primary problem is state disinvestment yes. and cost shifting correct so it's not quality uh i think there is a like uh, as long-time listeners know, I think there is a huge quality problem. I don't think this is the way to solve it. But is that the prime? Right. But is that is that the primary problem? or Is the primary problem cost shifting? I think the primary problem is state disinvestment. Yeah. See, I I disagree. I mean, I, I think, the, and I think the scorecard, which we'll talk about in a second, okay. right? A lot a, data that data that show um, uh, repayment rates and mm -hmm. and earnings after college suggest like earnings after college is not necessarily a function entirely a function of tuition prices it may not be a function of it at all right it's largely a function of how successful are you after graduation um and uh, uh and how much you were taught uh, in some sense uh at least we would we would imagine um uh, that has something to do with it and so i think this is i think the mistake right so I think there's a lot of mistakes, right? But but number one, the number one mistake is I think it's I, I literally think it's identifying the wrong problem, right? The the problem is is that is that the value of higher ed is in doubt, partly because it's gotten much more expensive, but also partly because it's not providing much in many cases for many people, right? So simply cost shifting back to taxpayers isn't going to change that, right? So it would make it somewhat less risky for students. That's and that's that's not a bad thing, but I think but that's not that to me is not the primary object, right? The primary object should be creating a system where all institutions have incentive to try their best 
to help their students be successful? Well, I mean, if you say like the problem, I mean, if you so, but of course there are multiple problems. So I see yeah. the kind of but, Sanders, I think, but this, Sanders Clinton plan, which again I'm going to argue defini- like But problem definition is the whole ball game in Washington, right? Like let's okay, be real. Sure. All right, yeah. And 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 the le- and the left has identified student debt as cost. the primary. Yeah, but student debt primarily. Right. That's why it's debt free college right. and no loan college. Primarily, whatever. It's a big piece of it. But no loan college, right? Like, why is no loan right. college the goal? So, uh, public college, right? So, I think. Fine. I mean, like, I mean, so you're absolutely right about the debt thing. The Clinton plan, inclu- I mean, the, so the Hillary Clinton plan is very clearly, it is a comprehensive, <clears throat> in some ways, synthesis of like lots of other plans, right? So, you have the Obama free community college plan, you have the Elizabeth Warren interest rate reduction plan is in there. You have essentially a version of the Bernie Sanders, yep. let's renegotiate f- uh, higher education federalism to provide more money, but the states have to stop disinvesting. And we focus that, uh, th- th- that's in there. There's actually some good pro technology innovation stuff in the Clinton plan. Uh, I, I was glad Window to see it. Dressing. I think it's, well, I mean, but it's there. Yeah. I mean, after, after I mean, saying, after saying online education has no integrity, we need to make sure that it regains it. I, I don't think it says it there's has no, no integrity. But there's no reason. That's that, not a quote though. Okay. Okay. Andrew, it does not say it's online close. education has it's no close. integrity. It's it says close. there it's are pretty like close. issues. There are issues. I mean, but that is just incorporating gainful, right? So that's just basically the Clinton, the Clinton campaign wrapping their arms fully around the Obama ad- agenda, higher education agenda. So there's no distance between them. I think it's full. I think it's full triangulation is what it is. It is. It there's is more let's than pull, three dimensions to this. So, let's but, pull all of it. Let's pull right. all of it together. And, and budget constraints are really no, no option. Cause you're always gonna have somebody to the left of you that you can compare yourself to as being cheaper. Right. At least in the primary. Right. And so let's just throw it all in. Right. Let's just throw every idea into the mix. It is absolutely a comprehensive. Approach. Yeah, I agree. And with I, that. So, like, co- where where you where you <laughs> would suggest the word comprehensive is yeah. what fits it best. I would I would di- I would differ. I I think it's I think it's kind of a mess um, in some sense. Um, and and I think so. So the first part I think that about the state disinvestment thing is is the is the. But do you? I mean, do you do you or do you not think that state investment is a problem and that should be solved? Um. I think what I'd like to, I think what I'd like to see more clearly is are two things. Number one, what has the effect of state disinvestment been on not tuition prices, but productivity of the systems mm-hmm. and student success? And I don't think we've seen that. I don't think we've seen that proven in any sense. Um, number one, number two, I'd like to see what we know about how we spend the money that we currently invest. We, so that what, is not what is the pa- we here? Is it all of it or like? Uh, yeah, w- w- uh, states. Okay. So I think I think I think so. A couple things, right? I just came. I, we, I just had a state finance meeting that was actually right. that was actually better than than the average okay. one. Um, not a high bar, but and yeah, and 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 the questions that we wound up coming to were basically like nobody has faith that colleges spend the money that states currently spend on them uh, f- efficiently or cost effectively. So spending more, right? What does that do to change that? Well, it's not spending more. It's not not spending less, right? I mean, we're, I mean well, no, they have to arre- ramp it up. It's not arresting a decline in investment. Hillary's plan says you'd have to ramp it up over time. That's a that's a quote. No integrity, okay. maybe a paraphrase. <laughs> ramp it up, ramp up over time, ramp right. up that spending over sure. time is a quote. Okay. So that's 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 one thing. Um, um, I think also the second thing is it always strikes me as ironic that conversations about state disinvestment start with. Gosh, 
these greedy state legislators right. they want to steal money from higher ed They're the worst. and give it to other people and give it to other spend it on other things right. like prisons and all these bad things Tax right price. not obamacare because that never gets mentioned right. right but that's really what's actually straining the budget right one of the many things yes yeah. but that's that's a big one right so in states that anyway go ahead and then and that and that's followed by so what we in the free college context anyway what we really need to do then is cap tuition at free and make what colleges are able to spend entirely dependent on what lawmakers are willing to spend on them. So, I mean, this gets to some big questions of how we organize public education in America, right? Like I thought, like, well, I will say this. So again, I critique the Sanders plan. I, I liked the Hillary Clinton plan better for like a lot of reasons. Um, but I thought that in Bernie Sanders' like 30 second like response when this came up, I thought he actually gave a very succinct and persuasive justification for his approach, which is, hey, we have free high school, right? So we have free public education all the way through grade 12. It's uncomplicated. Everyone gets to go, whether you're rich, whether you're poor. Donald Trump's kid can send his kid there. No one sort of bats an eye at that because that's the, the Clinton critique. I don't want Donald Trump's kids to go for free. Um, why are we going to have this whole kind of cockamamie complicated? It's more for this and 10 hours for that. Let's just make it free, kind of like it used to be. Like, like that, that was a, a formula that worked for America. Let's get back to it. That's either what he said or what I think in my head. In what no, I, heard I, th him say. I think but that's, that's kind of what he said. That's, yeah. that's, and I feel like there's, I think that's that, the, that is a persuasive argument. That's the argument from, from, from friends of ours on the left too, who say, why do we stop at 12? What about 13 and 14? Um, uh, you know, I, th I think, I think what I would say in response is I, I, I would be, um, I think if that's the conversation we're going to have, right, then where does it ever end, right? Well, I mean, so there is because we're already paying tons of money for graduate degrees, right? We're already in in back end loan forgiveness. Well, but, I mean, at some we point so, we but, just start. But like the implicate, so but you can spool this out and say, and I would say this, and in fact, I think my me and my colleagues at New America are going to say this in a much kind of more elaborate way at some point in a sort of a big paper we're working on right now about really trying to reconceptualize comprehensively how higher ed finance works, which is if you can come to people and say, you know, have a really solid guarantee of a free public education, we don't need to be subsidizing interest rates for loans so, at all. So what, you know, but, so, but, you know what I'm saying? And so, so how does free, so how does free, all that stuff, but, you know, how does, like, but how does just labeling 13 and 14 as free change the outcomes for low income students at community colleges? Well, then you get into this whole question of what you're subsidizing, right? I mean, this, so this is people are very interested now in kind of can we use this money to subsidize living expenses? And I think I think there's been this sort of growing awareness of the fact that and like, what happens when we start not, tuition is not the biggest expense in community college, which is a fair yeah. a fair point. That's to make. totally fair. But but what happens when you condition cash for living expenses on college enrollment? Well, then you have. To, I mean, there are a lot of quest policy questions that if you ask them in a way that suggests that nothing else will change, they seem like a bad idea. But if you can change a bunch of things simultaneously to have a new equilibrium of push and pull and incentives, then they actually could be a really good idea. And right, and and I would and I would just suggest that in our experience, your in, quality question, in the experience, right? Well, and and in the experience of federal policy across many different domains, mm -hmm. tr pulling off Hail, the Hail Mary pass that has all these things fall together at the same time to work the way the best laid plans are designed to work mm -hmm. tends to not. 
play out the way we we had planned. Well, we got Obamacare not that long ago, right? I mean, that was a whole bunch of things at once, right? I mean, it was a huge comprehensive healthcare reform. It was cost controls and subsidies. Yeah, and I would suggest that, like, um, I would suggest that there's still um, quite a few hiccups in 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 how it's playing out, and 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 in, and and as well according to predictions, right? I mean, like, the roles are much smaller than people thought. Right. I yeah, mean, that just came this out. Roman, I think it's down. Yeah. It's not as high as people thought. Yeah. yeah. Um, so, I mean, I just think, I think it's important always to be. Sure. And, and I think, I mean, this is, the, the, so just to finish up the point about relying on state legislators that we've yeah. just talked about not paying enough, right, is what it leads to is a situation where enrollments grow and the states say, we can't pay. We cannot pay more money according to the bond, to the, to the agreement we struck with the feds. And then the feds have a, feds have an option. Do they pull back the money, which never happens, right? They pull back the money or do they say to states, okay, we're going to allow you to charge fees or surcharges or whatever, in which case we've reset the clock for 10 years, but we haven't solved the structural problem that drives spending and, and, uh, uh, costs higher year over year. I mean, as you know, I'm all in favor of solving the structural problem. And there are like lots of ways to talk about it. But I think that. doubling down on the, on the public system by p- pouring more, I mean, if you read, right, if you read Howard Bowen, right, if you read Revenue Theory of Cost, this is a recipe for more spending, right? It just, it's just, if, if, if you, if you don't change the incentives for colleges. Well, so let's do them both at the same time. I'm all in favor. But how? I mean, I mean. But what part of the Clinton plan changes the incentives for colleges? I think that the Clinton plan does include, but I think that if you read it, there is a uh, a definite cognizance of the, I mean, I think you can, I don't have it in front of me, but I think that there are, there are like lots of acknowledgments of the culpability of colleges. I mean, during the debate, she says college costs are outrageously high. She didn't say state legislators have disinvested and forced colleges to raise prices. She said college costs are outrageously high. And so I think, and, you know, there, I think that the Obama administration is actually, if you look at their rhetoric, which doesn't always match, match their action, although we got to talk about the very active sort of late administra- late late period Obama administration and the, the all the high red stuff that's been going on because there's a lot going on actually. Um, if I you mean read look, that plan. I mean, it very much does talk about the need for efficiency and productivity, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. I th- like, I th- is it is it matched by the strength of the action represented in the billions and billions of dollars promised for? Interest rate reductions and which no. we haven't even which we haven't even talked about, yeah, well, which which are obviously just BS. Yeah, right? let's like, let's just agree to nonsense. Agree on that. Yeah. yeah. So and 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 I think w- but where we differ, which I think we can talk about over and over again right. uh, in future sessions, is I I just I, I tend to think that spend that doubling down on the public system with a new with a new pot of federal money and promises from the states about both spending more and improving their institutions, I think we're going to be disappointed. And I think it's going to reset the clock. And, and it depends. If resetting the clock is what we're after, in terms of 10 years from now, they start charging tuition again. Like, it's, it'll be the California experience, right? Like, they start charging tuition. It gets bigger and bigger and bigger. And then, you know, f- 15 or 20 years from now, yeah. we're where we were. Although you've just, I mean, you've like described a, gen- you've also described a generation of college students yeah, going but, to college and so not that, paying as much. So money. that's fine. Yeah. And I mean, borrowing so, less and, and, so and, yeah, with, with potentially no increase in quality and they're just paying sure. less, right? So they're paying less, no, no right, perceptible well, so how, increase so then how in quality. Do you, I mean, what is the Andrew Kelly recipe for increasing quality? Like, That'll be for the next Oh, okay. The next all right. Session. Okay. Good. Okay. Let's, um, let's, let's no, I mean, I, you so. know, it's, it's, I'm just, a, I'm a, mar- I'm a market I'm a markets guy, and and I think I just I think it's I think institutions are more likely 
to and I think I think this US News and World Report chase for prestige is actually a case in point of this that institutions are much more likely to change their behavior in response to uh, preference student preferences than they are to directives from the states or from the government from the federal government all right um I think we'll end up returning to these issues probably as the campaign season wins on. We haven't even gotten the higher ed plans from the Republican. Oh, nominees, Marco but, Rubio has but, a plan. But I'm sure there are other plans that are going to be coming out. There are uh, plans in the works. Plans in the works. Um, so uh, the other kind of interesting interesting thing that's happened. Sorry to our listeners. I have a little bit of a cold. Uh, so my throat is a little, a little dry today. Um, the college scorecard data was released. So background on this, two years ago, a little more, August of 2013, I guess, um, President Obama announced with great fanfare that there was going to be a college rating system that we were going to. I don't know that you have to put with great fanfare after anything that you say about the president announcing something. Oh, usually, really? comes said, with, okay. usually comes with great fanfare. Fair enough. That's a given. Fair enough. Yeah, it's, <laughs> the president said it. Um, we we're going to have a college rating system. We were going to rate the colleges based on who was good and who wasn't. And this was both to help consumers make the right choices and also to potentially be a new criterion for uh, the receipt of federal aid. Um, and then a lot of time went by and a lot of questions were asked and a lot of uh, teeth were gnashed about this idea. And uh, early summer of this year, the they gave up and said, we're not going to do that after all. And so people like me who were very enthusiastic about this were upset and you know tweeted about it. And uh, the high red lobby uh, uh, congratulated itself on yet another and a long string of victories. Um, and they said, but we're going to put some data out at the end of the summer. And frankly, I was a little cynical about this because I was just feeling cynical at the time about anything better ever happening. But they did put data out. And it was, I think, I mean, I think you can, we can say it was the single biggest increase in the quality of comprehensive federal data about higher education like ever in history. Like the day before and the day after. Starting, from, a, starting from an extremely low bar. Sure. So, so, yeah. so on, early on a Saturday morning, about in early September, they released uh, something that I've been, you know, writing and talking about, not just me, but, you know, uh, earnings data. So for every college and university in America, pretty much now, you can, there's a website that will tell you how much people who enrolled in that college 10 years prior uh, were earning. And this is based on a match between, and who uh, were in the federal financial aid system which is the large majority of students, but not all students. Um, and varies a lot by institution. Varies a lot by institution, and presumably it represents, in presumably the students who are outside of that population, community colleges accepted, are more well-off. Yeah, um, that's probably We don't know right. all the community colleges because there's some different behavior there. But um, it's, it's most of the students. So they matched records from the um, U.S. Department of Education's uh, Federal Student Aid Administration, with uh, tax returns from the IRS, which is very cool. If you think that, you know, Orwellian um, uh, federal government uh, uh, matching of data is cool, which I certainly do. Um, so we have earnings data now, not just uh, median earnings, but average earnings by gender, 10th, 25th, 50th, 75th, 90th percentile earnings, earnings I think independent and dependent, I think six year earnings, stuff that really no one I think that I've seen has even spent that much time kind of digging into. Um, we also have student loan repayment rates, which is which were really interesting. And so um, all we knew up until now was essentially the percent of students who defaulted within about two and a half years after graduating from college or leaving college, sorry, um, which was certainly widely recognized as an inadequate measure because a lot of students, A, default after more than two and a half years and B, may not default, but may be struggling to pay their loans back. And so we now know, um, I think one, three, five and seven years after leaving school, 
the percent of people who have or have not paid down at least $1 in principal on their loan. Um, and then lots of other stuff too. Uh, Pell Grant grad rates, although I guess I'm not quite sure if those are good or not. Um, yeah, they're not sure that they're particularly accurate. Yeah. Um, That's not re not quite ready for prime time. Lots and lots of information. So it was super fun to kind of dive into. Um, Andrew, your thoughts both on the act of releasing the data and what the data say. Uh, so definitely um, have to applaud the the effort. Um, you know, lots of lots of sort of still gaping holes, right? That we that that need addressing. So only for federal aid recipients is is tough because. You know, presumably there are people out there who don't receive federal aid that would still like to know information about what they're about to do. Um, you know, not uh, that's basically the best I think they can do now without uh, more comprehensive student level data, which they're of course uh, banned from collecting. Right. Um, Despite uh, the best effort, we at New America are determined to change that. Yeah. Well, I've written a lot about it too, and and in and in fact, it's cost it's costly for me. Because it actually hurts my hurts me with with people who run in my circles. So, um, uh, so, but I still, you know, I've still written about a ton. Um, uh, I think program level data is a big one. I think um, yeah. um, aggregate institution level data. I think for basically for four year colleges that are in the top, you know, elite is probably pretty good, honestly. Um, um, even there though, you're going to have like schools that are geared toward engineering and sciences uh -huh. look yeah. better. Although, I mean, they have, you know, you can like look at degree team and start to back that out if you want to. Mm. Right. You can look at the mix of programs, yeah, like and, but like you're and still kind of like getting, yeah, yeah, you're still sort of like, uh, potentially comparing and from a consumer's perspective, that's just, it's just harder to tell. Right. right? Um, if you're, you know, if a bad program's hiding within a, within a decent right. institution or an institution that provides 90% I have a, of engineering I have a degrees. column in to the Chronicle of Higher Ed that I wrote that I need to check on where I basically said, this is the first shoe. The second shoe, the really awesome one is program level data, undergraduate and graduate programs. Mm. Then we will sort of see who is swimming without their shorts on. Yeah. There's something in the, said. there's something in the, in the documentation in the, with the release that said something starting with the 2012 cohort, the have program level yeah. data. So that's sort of a few years off from that, right? right? Cause they'll have, they'll take a while to get out in the labor force. But, um, th so, you know, those are the, those to me are the primary shortcomings. I mean, the, the folks at, uh, Russ Whitehurst and Matt Chingos, uh, Russ at Bro Brookings and Matt at Urban now raised a good point as well, which is that it's, it's actually hard to, um, uh, allocate responsibility f to a particular institution for some of these earnings data, right? Because people will touch multiple institutions, mm -hmm. um, and they'll be counted in in a, in a given institution's earnings data. So that is an interesting, really interesting point. Um, also, something you can at least start to get to if you have a student unit record system. Yeah, which, as you say, is well, even even still, though, then you're sort of like, well, how do you allocate? But how do you allocate responsibility? Right. But right? at least you can start to try to come up with answers to that question. If you have a student unit record system, you could at least you could at least right you could at least sort out who was who got most of their ninety percent yeah I'm sorry most of their credits ninety percent I mean of their so so like I I I have a master's degree from Ohio State and of those credits one class was from the local community college it was a prereq in accounting so you can look at that and say not a multi institutional student all the you know I mean like a reasonable person there there should right. be some way to kind of filter me into the plus or minus on Ohio State and Ohio State can decide how it feels about me. But Right. I think um, I think that's right. Um but you know, all in all, I think it's really interesting. I mean, I think for me, the earnings, the point estimates on the earnings, 
are are actually less interesting um, than the uh, percentage earning more than twenty five grand. Yeah. I mean, yeah. I just think that that's what that's really what. So explain, explain what you mean. So, so they, so uh, one of the indicators is the percentage earning more than twenty five thousand dollars after six years after enrolling. Um, the earnings data that they that they present on the actual scorecard, just earnings in general, is ten years after right. enrollment. Um, and the twenty five thousand dollar percentage of, who earn more than that, um, you know, to me is is essentially like. Is there any return on investment? And they, and a I mean, very their, low bar. Right, to their credit, they very much, I, mean, I thought this was interesting. This is the kind of thing you normally don't see a federal agency do, which is to bring some like a sharp uh, point of view, as we say in the writing world, to some data. And, and they very explicitly said, look, if all you have is a high school diploma, 25 grand is about what you're going to make. So this tells you the percent of students who got any value added at all yep. from enrolling in college. And there are like, many, many colleges in which most of the students are not, when I say many, like tens, hundreds of colleges out of the thousands in the database where those numbers are, they're not good. I mean, they're, they're, they're not good. And so I, I think, in, so I think from a consumer's perspective, um, you know, there's been a lot of hemming and hawing about how we can't infer too much from this because they're serving, you know, it's, they're serving different students and all the, all the classic um, caveats, which I think are, are the standard uh, hemming and the standard hawing. They're appropriate, right? But um, but for me, yeah, they um, those things are sort of like the Surgeon General's warning kind of right. deal, right? Like, do not go here because this is this is like sort of a, a tragedy unfolding, mm -hmm. right? Um, repayment, the repayment rate, and the and the um, and the earn, the er, percent earning above a high school graduate, approximately, I think are really I think they're important from the consumer's perspective. Yeah. Um, the low, lowest hanging fruit for me is warning people off of really bad things. I think in the middle, I think in the middle, comparing earnings is kind of silly. Well, and for like the big institutions too. No, I agree with you. I, I actually, so I wrote a piece a couple of weeks ago about the loan repayment rate data and just kind of making this sort of first order observation that if you look at the three-year cohort default rate and compare that to the, I chose the five-year non-repayment rate. I just turned it upside down. There are colleges in which the differences between those two numbers are astoundingly large. Yeah, I, mean, I, I found a a, a chain of for-profit colleges called, I, I, so either American National University or National American University, both of which are distinct chains of for-profit colleges, one in the lower Midwest, one in the upper Midwest. I think it's American National University that may be the bourbon talking. So if not, it's National American University, although neither of them have good numbers. Um, but their three-year cohort default rate was 8%. And their five-year non-repayment rate was like 70%. And so you go on their website and there, there's literally a, 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 a part of their website called uh, Department of Repayment Success, which is, let us tell you how to defer your loans or put them in forbearance or do, let us help you get your loans past the two and a half year point at which we don't give a damn anymore because it doesn't make any difference as far as our eligibility for Title IV aid, which is, by the way, all of our money. Yeah, this um, is an entire industry, right? Yeah. Um, and so, no, the repayment rate, the repayment rate shift is a really important one. Right. And in fact, and in fact, the publishing of those rates and the injection of them into the, the discussion, I think is actually one of the more right. important things. I actually, um, got, I got an email from someone at a pretty big public school system who was like in the guidance department saying, can you point us to this data? Because we do not want to send our graduates to these colleges 
where no one pays their loans back. And if, boy, if everyone could start thinking that way about colleges, because I really do, I was talking to some folks from like overseas the other day. And I said, you know, the thing that you have to understand is that there is a tremendous amount of ingrained optimism associated with colleges in our culture, right? So when people, going to college is an immense act of positivity. It's something to feel good about. It is a milestone to be reached. And in the same way that people don't enroll in college saying, maybe I'll drop out. They don't enroll in college saying, maybe uh, I'll borrow too much money and my life will be ruined. Um, even though for many colleges, the odds of both of those things happening are quite large. But they, because they're colleges and they're accredited colleges, the, all of these sort of signals that we learn are that, we, that there's no reason to think that way, that we should trust them. And there's just a there's like there is a vast exploitation of that trust going on. Well, and I think right, and I think it affects I think it affects all different levels of this, mm-hmm. the sector too, right? So, I mean, one of the things that I always wonder is, you know, for a lot of these folks who wind up signing up for an associate's degree in liberal arts, who who are likely not going to transfer to a four year degree by all empirical indications, right? Yep. And yet they still sign up for that. And even if they get it, if you drop out, you're in really deep trouble. Even if you get it. You make twenty grand a year. I've said places. so. There's, you know, there's this big movement. Increase the percent of people with college degrees, and this is this is the Obama administration's priority. This is also the priority of um, the large foundations um, like the Lumina Foundation and the Gates Foundation. Full disclosure, both of whom uh, fund New America's higher education work. Um, and I've said to them, and they actually have this debate about should we count like one year workforce certificates in the numbers, which are generally not counted in the numbers. Census numbers. In the census numbers. And what my response is, you should count them as long as you don't count the people whose highest degree is a liberal arts AA. Because that's just half a bachelor's degree, man. That's not a real degree. The labor market doesn't, like quite rightly, treats you the same as someone who went to college for two years and dropped out. Because that's what you did. You can go look at it. I mean, you can look at it in Texas and Florida and California and arkansas and colorado it's it's just it's the truth and i think but i think and that's like four or five percent of people but i th- right and i think well it's a lot it's a lot of people like I all mean, people though. right from the of the people who go to community college you can add up like lots of the other stem degrees in a community college and they don't come close to the number getting a liberal arts degree um and i think back to your point about the trust i think Part of what explains that is that when people come in, they get asked a question, which is, well, do you think you'd want to go get a bachelor's degree eventually? And they say, oh, yeah, of yeah, course. Yeah, sure. Right? Again, that's, that's the ticket. The culture. Yeah, that's, that's the ticket. Are, they, are, they know they're supposed to say. Yep. And it's, and it's sort of and, – and I think it's a shame. I mean, we were just in a, I was just in a meeting earlier this week um, um, with some folks, some of whom you know, where the discussion was about vocational terminal AA degrees, associate's degrees in science, applied science, and literally – one person after another said, well, there's, those are dead-end degrees because... See, this is... Okay, so I'm going to go off on a little bit of a tant slash promotional r- rant here. So my colleague, uh, Mary Alice McCarthy, who works with me here at New America, has a paper coming out. It's actually, it'll be published in a week or two on exactly this topic, terminal degrees. And Mary Alice comes from the uh, like vocational CTE workforce education world. And the whole point of this piece that she wrote, and it's one of those things that once you read it, you're like... Oh, right. I kind of knew that, but boy, I really know it now. So I hope I will, I'm going to promote it again on future editions of Higher Ed Happy Hour. But like you can enroll in a community college and take basically some random collection of 60 credits that sort of, sort of, kind of, kind of look like the things you would take as part of your gen ed requirements, transfer them into a a four-year institution and go on to a bachelor's degree. 
if you enroll in the same community college and take a structured curriculum of courses that is designed, that Applied is actually designed or, yeah. to impart knowledge and skill that has value in the labor market, you can't transfer them right. into the same bachelor's degree programs and just pick up your gen ed requirements on the back end. Even though there's no evidence at all that actually shows that doing the gen ed first is better than doing the specific second. Yeah. None. It is, there's, it is a completely non-empirical policy. So when people say they're dead end degrees, only because we've decided that. Yeah. Why have we decided that? And in, fa and in fairness, one of the folks- Class in, bias, by the way, is the answer to that Yes, question. right, right. Well, and in fairness, one of the folks arguing about this earlier this week was was using the phrase dead end to refer to this process yeah. but but my my point was basically like look the more we describe this stuff as dead end the less likely people are to actually take it on right there's right. a cultural problem there um no i think the class bi class bias is exactly right there was we we had a discussion at a lumina meeting last week about well why is we owe us so um you know uh um focused on data and workforce outcomes and so on and I said, look it's not you know and why are k-12 schools expected to measure all this stuff and whatever and i said it's no surprise that like the 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 institutions and the things we hold in low esteem we force to measure what they do right we don't trust, we don't trust them yeah and the, thing, the us, things so. that we love the things that we you love and discuss all the time show us prove it we trust them yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. that's exactly right mary Allen, there's actually some like she uncovered some language some in like a creditor guidance, I think from Sachs or someone, that basically says you need to watch out and make sure that you're not accepting classes that were not meant for transfer. Mm -hmm. You know, like you need to you need to be vigilant about keeping these credits out. Um, so 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 essentially, like the our policy is the more what you <laughs> the more the class you take in community college will actually help you get a job. The less we value it, yeah. And if it's so, if if you take a class that has no relevance to anything, and again, I'm not like opposed to the liberal arts or like just to be clear about this, I think there's all kinds of reasons that could be a great thing for someone to do. But is it so much better that one should be given a huge free pass slash implicit subsidy in our whole system of regulation and finance, and the other one is essentially guilty until proven innocent? No, that's crazy. I agree. That's crazy. I, I I I I fully agree. I mean, I think the other the other challenge here is like this is where you get into the discussion about stackability and everything. Right. And and the explain what you mean by that. So stackability is where you you have you get a credential um, that is typically like starts could start a certificate, right? Um, and, but then you can take that the credits you earn as part of that certificate and bring it back and build towards an associate's degree on that foundation. Use the associate's degree to build toward a bachelor's. Um, I mean, in my in my experience, when I've actually interviewed people who who have stackable credential programs in their area, both employers and schools, um, they say, "Look, what the problem we have is that people get that first certificate, and they're so valuable in the labor market, they don't come back, right? Right. Which, which to me, I'm always like, that's not really a problem. It's a yeah, good problem that, to have, right? right? Sure. Um, you, may... you know, but like it do, it does suggest like that 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 the stackability thing has yet to really you know come to fruition as but a thing. That where... doesn't seem like a problem to me at all. Nope. You know, no. I mean, as long as they can come back and keep stacking if they want to. Yeah, right? I, I totally agree. And I think, I mean, at, the, at you know, sitting where I sit, right, at, 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 the, at base, I think a lot of this, a lot of the skepticism about this stuff mm -hmm. comes from, from 
actually a lack of appreciation for the dignity of work and the dignity of of working in a in a in an occupation and earning your earning a living and I mean yeah, I, there was a, there was a, a piece in the Chronicle a few weeks ago where the like the headline was you know college is not a, a commodity and it was essentially it was the argument against uh, thinking of higher education in terms of uh, return you know monetary return in the labor market and you know my my just gut reaction is look. Like money is a is a commodity in this in a broad weird use of the phrase in the sense that a dollar is a dollar. But if you th- like, it's not like every program designed to impart skills that earn money are all the same. Right, they're all really different from one right. another, and right. some are like much better than others. You know, there's nothing commodity like about a sort of a great allied health program as opposed to a chemical engineering program as opposed to a, this program. I mean. You know, they're like really, really different. It's the opposite of a commodity. And it's just such a, it's just kind of a, it's sort of like there's, there's this aristocratic pursuit of truth that is non-commodity. And then there are all the proles just kind of busy, busily grinding away in their, their unimportant job, subsistence job. I don't know, it really right. rankles me. Well, you know? yeah. And, 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 and I, like, I always say to people, like, like the launching pad it's it's it seems to me abundantly clear that the launching pad to a successful life where you can transfer success to your your children right and and lead a productive life is having a job right i mean like people who don't have jobs right. are 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 in trouble right they they don't they have worse health outcomes they don't vote right so like like all these things that we tend to you know attribute to college and suggest that learning a vocational skill and getting a job would be would be somehow detrimental to that seems to run counter to like lots of what we know this is the point that tony carnavalli makes all the time when he sort of he kind of makes the big contrast between the european social welfare state and the united states of america just like getting a job is the social safety net here you know there's really not another one particularly not now you know i mean there's no there's no tolerable life of unemployment really and uh and like, and that's like, it's, it's, it's a terrific, um, it would be a terrific thing if, 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 if Americans, um, particularly low income Americans aimed for, um, uh, for a situation where they, they were able to, uh, earn a living and aim higher, right? Like over time, I just, I feel like there's, I feel like there's this kind of like 18 to 24, you got to make this huge gamble. Right. And and you either go for the bachelor's degree and make good on 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 social mobility or you fail and good luck. Well, this is this is another point that Mary Alice makes in her paper, which is when we sort of the system made a little more sense in the 60s and 70s when the bachelor's degree was not yet the single inflection point in the ladder to opportunity. Uh, But it is now. And we can argue about whether it should be or it shouldn't be and how to change it. But right now it totally is. And so to take this whole class of people and just shut them off from the opportunity to get it for, again, reasons that really are not rooted in empiricism is, is terrible. Okay, so it's, it's five after five. So I think we've been talking for a little while. Um, just a few other points to make, to kind of throw out there. I do feel like there's been kind of a flurry of activity from the uh, Department of Education on higher education. The undersecretary, Ted Mitchell, seems to be you know very active in trying to do lots of things. And so... Um, in addition to the college scorecard coming out, we had uh, action on prior, 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 prior year, uh, a, a, an idea beloved by a small coterie of Washington, D.C.-based higher ed blancs and unknown to everyone else, but this idea that you would essentially allow people to use not the 
prior year's income, but two years ago income and defining whether your income uh, allows you to get a full Pell Grant or not. Yeah. As Mike McPherson said recently at a meeting I was at, only in Washington would you call this prior, prior year. <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. yeah. But that became what it was called. Yeah. And so they're acting on that. Um, and then just like this week, they said they're going to do something on accreditation. So everyone's yeah. been yelling about accreditation, including me and you and lots of people have been uh, you know, I, I feel like we're a good 10 years into the, I feel like it was, Oh, we're 30 years. It was at least five years ago that I was at an AEI meeting in which Judith Eaton, the sort of, uh, uh, head of accreditation in America, Chia, whatever, yep. um, said, I've been coming here for five years to get yelled at about accreditation. <laughs> that was five years ago. So I think Judith is a good sport. She yeah, always comes she to comes get yelled and gets at. Yelled at. Yeah, yeah. So yeah. we're at least 10 years, probably maybe that's just when I started yelling about it. But they said, you know, I mean, Ted Mitchell, to his credit, and I was at a Senate hearing, testifying at a Senate hearing uh, a few weeks ago with Richard Vetter, um, because I think you were at a different one. I'm like, why? I was at the Joint Economic right, Committee. That was, yeah. I'm like, why? Come? I, I, said, I said to someone, <laughs> I'm like, why hasn't Andrew Kelly fully displaced Richard Vetter as the go-to Republican? And they were like, he was at a different hearing the same day. I'm like, okay. Yeah. That's a good answer. There you go. Okay. Um, but so it was, uh, Richard and I, and it was fun because we agreed on 80% of everything. Nice. And the part we disagreed on was like title nine. Yeah. And, and Vetter made the, the, uh, terrible error of take, taking a gratuitous swipe, a gratuitous and unnecessary swipe at title nine and a Senate hearing that was a community where Claire McCaskill was there. So he deserved everything he got after that. You know, you just got to know your audience at that point. Yeah. Do that. Yeah. Um, but anyway, so so uh, Ted Mitchell came on was the other witness, and and he said something that he's I've heard him say over and over and over again, which is Corinthian Colleges was accredited all the way up until the day it they went bankrupt, it disappeared, and that is an indictment of the accreditation system. I think he's right about that, and to the extent that anything substantive comes from that observation, I'm all in favor of it. Yeah, I think the I think that the latest announcement around um, uh, it's the, it's I don't know what the acronym stands for, but it's equip equip e q u i p. What's that? Um, this is the program that they're going to waive the fifty percent rule, which oh, is yeah, the requirement okay, so, that you yeah. that you have fifty percent of your instruction right. uh, yeah. uh, provided by by the institution itself. Um, interesting idea, I think. For me, the most interesting part about it is the. This is a kind of another thing they're doing, which yeah, is, yeah, which is experimenting with opening up Title Four. Yeah, to, for like, me, providers and stuff like that, boot camps right? and and nano degrees and yeah. so on. But I mean, the key is that because they, it's what they can do without legislation, and yeah. so the rule is waiving the requirement for institutions, so the new guys will have to partner with the institutions. Right. Which to me is, I get why I get why you politically you'd have to do it that way. For them, but I think I think it's a not a good idea because um, I think it it just becomes like another bell and whistle that the, that the institutions roll into their yeah. tuition and then they um, charge more for it. But what's interesting to me is that part of the plan is to say, and we also want to encourage new quality assurance entities to come forward and recognize and which the, providers. This is the th the question that no one has a really good answer yep. to. Everyone's like someone. Yep who's politically acceptable to everyone. Yep. So it can't really be the federal government. Nobody has a good answer to it. But like what I always say- Needs to, to step into this role yeah. of a quality assurance provider and we have no idea who that is. But like what I what I always say to people on this is like, who, um, what happened before the DC Public Charter School Board existed, right? There was no like arbiter as like, who could be a public school right. no, other I, than the yeah. district, right? Yeah. right? And so like you, sometimes you need to invent new things yeah. to do new jobs. I'm totally in agreement. I'm yeah. 
and the, the Rubio and Bennett amendment yes. uh, uh, or proposal is the same idea, right. right? It says like let's let's have new quality assurance entities authorizers come in and and do this that job. Was a, that was a I, I'm I think it's an admirable piece of legislation. It's bipartisan, and I was talking. You know, one of the things we talk about here at New America, my colleague Mark Schmidt and some other people are sort of trying to think about like what are the conditions for bipartisanship in 2015. And one of the things I said was just thinking about this. I said, look. Uh, one thing that I think is true for both people on the left and people on the right, uh, or several things I think are true. One, they all have constituents who are scared to death about the cost of college. That's universal. Two, I think that, and I've noticed this when I've testified about accreditation, um, members of Congress, you know, there's some things they don't know much about at all, but there are some things that they actually know a whole lot more about than the average person. And one of those things is the uh, existence and influence of rent-seeking special interest groups. Because mm. to be a member of Congress is essentially to just sit in a room and have people come to you and explain why they should get some kind of deal. Special really dispensation, deserve. correct. Right? That's, like, that, correct. that's like, that in fundraising is 90% of your job. Yep. If you're a member. So, and they all are like, really? I mean, I think what they do is they pick and choose these supplicants that they want to get in bed with for political and financial reasons. But, but they all understand the deal on like some level. So when you say to them, this is going on in higher education also, and that's why college is becoming so, more, so much more expensive, they say, oh, mm -hmm. okay, I get that. Mm -hmm. yeah, that's a, there's there's a, a chain of logic that I think is actually broadly appealing, which is why I think the Rubio-Bennett bill is a bipartisan piece of legislation. Yeah, I agree. I agree. And there's been actually a lot of pushback on... Not necessarily that the the Rio Bennett there was some pushback mostly from people like oh this is going to open up for for profits and they're going to bilk people out of money but on the Which maybe but I mean but at least the, we can pay attention to that up well if, well if we just if we just sort of like think for a second about the incentive structure that we're creating um, and say these are the these are the standards you'll be held to sure right, right yeah um, we pay attention yeah and we just not let that happen right right it's not just the it's not just the for profit model that yeah. leads to that inevitable outcome um, but there was pushback on the equip program from folks on the left uh, saying um, and folks on the right. Uh, saying, "Oh, this is just going to raise the prices because you're just going to introduce federal aid to these guys," and which I, which I I think I mean, is a reasonable concern. Sure, most mostly because it's running through institutions, right? So you wind up in a revenue share agreement, which is just like we've seen this, right? We've seen this with you the just end up with some institution who figures out that their institutionness is worth a whole lot of money into itself. Yep. But I mean, you, they're that's just they launder the place, right? They this tax, is, they tax, and they launder. That's not any yeah. different than like to you or all these other things where they basically the only thing the institution the only value they really add is the brand name and their access to title four and that that entitles them to like half the money correct yeah that's right um so i think that's probably a little bit overblown i do think it's worth so i think if the you know if the department the biggest thing that could come out of the department's experiment to me is this new um set of authorizers Come forward, identify yourself. You want to do it, do it, do the job. Because that's then we're starting from a new starting point, which right. is we have a set of people who've said we want to do this job. Didn't some lender say they wanted to be one to like the skills CEO? fund? So, but is that so? It was described to me as I was just going to bring that up. So, yeah. so tell me if I'm so this is literally just me reading my phone on the way into work and someone saying something to me in the hall today. But so my impression, correct me if I'm wrong, is they are in the business of lending people money to go to boot camps, which sounds like a perfectly good idea um and they also want to accredit boot camps as being 
No, mm-hmm. it's not that they want to. So they sort of. So they will. They're as a function of lending. They would act oh, as. They would so act they as a de facto to, creditor because so they, so they're, they're setting standards for standards who they'll they, lend to, right, right, unlike right, right. the federal government. Right. Right. <laughs> so so that's fair, fair point. So that's sort of the that's where yes. the lever lever right. is, right? But that also seems. But that also sounds like it could go badly then, right? Because then you start to sort of say, someone comes along, you start, you strike no, some special deal. because you won't get the money back, right? But I mean, you, like you, you won't get repaid if the, about, if the programs... Like you, you find some program, I mean, eventually, but... But the thing, but think about it this way, right? But if like, there are federal loans, then you... The, the private, lend, right, the private yeah, lender is okay. not going to get the money back. Federal, federal lender just this writes it off, with the right? Yeah. Anyway, I start to, so, I start to lose the, the train of thought. I was going to say, I mean, so I think Skills Fund, I think Skills Fund, right. Rubio Bennett, Equip, I think they're all kind of part of the same conversation. Yeah. And I, I think, I actually think Skills Fund is probably the most promising model, which is private money on the hook that says, why would I lend to that guy if I'm never going to get that money back? Right. right? Um, which I think is actually the, a lever we need to exploit kind of, more. So like a long time ago, pre, pre-2007 collapse of the world economy, your friend and colleague Rick Hess and I co-wrote a piece was like the case for securitization of private student loans. And our whole theory was it will give an incentive for someone to care. Market discipline. Right. Whether yep. or not institutions are giving people a good enough education to pay their loans back because no one does now. Yep. yep. Yeah. That became the case for securitization became a little dicey. 2008 to 2009. Yeah, but, absolutely. You know. And now, and now, right. Private lenders now don't, they're not forward-looking. They lend on the basis of things we typically lend on, which is FICO scores and cosigners and so on. There's no reason why, given the right analytics, right. somebody can make somebody can make a lot of money lending to people. There is like SoFi, right? I mean, I see them. Yeah, on, they're like they advertise on Metro. Yeah, they send me email all the time. It's not. Yeah, I mean, maybe, maybe they're doing a lot of refin- refinancing, right. which is like a very safe bet. Right. That's not that's not forward looking. That's actually backward looking. Sure, okay. I, I look at where you came yeah. from and I right, right, right. I take your loans. I know you're a good prospect. Yeah. The real question is like, can you get a private lender to lend for something on the basis of what the likely outcome is? Yeah. Rather than what the student looks like and the zip but it code. Makes sense. It makes perfect sense to me that someone would that this is where someone would step in. I mean, yep. as so as an employer who actually is right now trying to hire a web developer, oh my God. Do you know how much money you have to spend to hire a web developer Tons. right now? It is crazy. Yeah. Crazy. And I mean, like literally, so these numbers that they, when they say, give us $10,000 and in 12 weeks, we'll give you a credential that will get you a job that pays 90000 That's That's true. Yeah. That's what it costs to hire yep. someone to just come in and like build your website for you. It's yep. nuts. So, and so, this, so someone wants to say, "Yeah, I'm going to lend those people money." Yeah, that, I'm sure that's a good idea. The problem is that's the problem is that information and that advertising pitch quickly um, gets copycatted by people who oh, don't gosh. actually do it. Yeah, and so that's where something like the Skills Fund. Um, right. You know, I, I have no affiliation to them, no conflict right. of interest here, but right. I just I just read about them yesterday. In fact, a, a reporter emailed me to say, "Have you heard of these guys? What do you think about them?" So um, I did a little bit of uh, searching around, but. Um, yeah, I think it's an interesting idea. Um, I think this is the problem. Like back to our original discussion about public versus private. Like one of the things that public subsidies are not very good at is like sussing out quality and value, right? And so private subsidies, private private money um, with skin in the game can actually do that. Um, so 
Bring it full circle. Bring it full circle. All right. Well, this feels like a good place to wrap up. Um, any any pop culture comments to as a little chaser for our audience? What are you watching listening to these? Um, you know what I've been watching lately is um, Married on FX. Have you watched that at all? Uh, no. Um, as somebody who's married with children, yes. you would like it a lot. Okay. It's really. Um, if I watch it with my spouse, will it like cause long simmering arguments to come to the surface? No, I think it's actually. I think actually, what it does is it actually shows how silly most of those things are right. in like a really a really valuable way. Okay. Um, uh, it's tight. It's a half hour. It's right. it's people who like likable characters that you like immediately. I feel like half the shows I watch are on FX. Now. I know. I know it's amazing. It's really it's really good. But that's what I've been watching. My, and my wife and I have been watching right. it together, which is yeah. rare. Yeah. So which is sort of that is like the it's the holy grail. It is it is sort of in, in, in a modern America of marriage. The thing that you watch with your spouse, you know, particularly since you have all these ways to not watch stuff anymore. Like we moved to we moved to the suburbs recently, and we have FiOS now, which means it's easier a little bit to like I'll watch it on my iPad, and you watch it on the TV because it's all about the individuality. So yeah, so we've been watching um, Fargo, second season of Fargo. Yeah, Fargo's I haven't tremendous. I haven't done it yet, but it's got Jesse Plemons in it. Yeah, Friday Night Lights yes. and Breaking Bad. Yeah, yep, yep, yep. So uh, two. So you haven't watched the first season? Of no, Fargo? I watched the first one. I watched the first one. Oh, so just dive yeah. in, man. It's so it's at least as good as the first season, if not better. It's better cast, yeah, I think. It's it's, for, it's fabulous. Yeah. Um, it's remember like in the first season it was remember Sioux Falls Sioux Falls that's what it's about yeah that whole thing so it, it rewinds to 1979 oh, and, and yeah. so now it's uh, uh, what's his name I forget his name playing Lou Salverson you know so yeah. it's, it's that whole thing oh my god Sioux Falls it's about that the whole thing so it's 1979 I love so, it uh, uh, a younger guy is playing the the, the, the David Carradine character uh, Keith yeah Carradine, yeah and, yeah um, and about what happened back then and that whole thing and, and so like the there's a the um molly solverson from the is is like five years old yeah you know, yeah yeah and you, and you find out like how she lost her mom and and some of that and yeah jesse plemons is in it um i will all i will say is the thing that always happens to the jesse plemons character at every show he's in happens happens again yeah, yeah yeah absolutely so fargo's awesome um totally should watch that uh so i've been catching up on hannibal which is Oh my God! I've watched a couple of them. So it's it was canceled. It was yeah. it was incredibly a network television show, showing the most depraved and unbelievably violent things I've ever seen on film in my life, including like already movies. I can't. I mean, there's literally. I guess they must have shown it. They sh they broadcast the show at like ten o'clock on Friday nights. Yeah. After the FCC, every yeah. horrible thing that you can imagine a serial killer doing to people, they showed. So it, it's essentially a massive parody of food shows because Hannibal Lecter was a foodie, right? So, yeah. so the show is a constant juxtaposition of beautifully shot, aesthetically pleasing montages of Hannibal Lecter preparing food for people with identic the identical aesthetics applied to him torturing maiming and butchering people in his serial killer desk it's it's so it like messes with your mind i won't be watching that it's with really my wife <laughs> don't oh my, my my wife is very she's much more like i have become i've long since uh desensitized to violence where she admirably is not at all oh. you know, she can barely get through fargo she has to like you know, close no, if there's eyes. if there's an explosion on the thumb thumbnail sketch of the movie when we're on iTunes, yeah. like that's enough. Yeah, it's so like she fire. She I can't herself, watch it. She arms herself with like a pillow to yeah. she, like Game of Thrones. Smart. She goes in with a full 
a full array of of like violence avoiding mechanisms, you know, to the point where I have to explain to her what happened because she, you know, you watch enough shows, you you know when it's happening, right? Yeah. So, so I'm like, okay, so he chopped his head off and it was horrible, <laughs> um, and so she could barely get through Fargo. I mean, Hannibal, I, I'm. I won't even turn it on when she's in the house, lest she accidentally come down. Hears it, or yeah, and and is exposed to these horrific images. But, no, but it, it's, too much. it's kind of amazing. It's a great show. Yeah. So, um, all right. Well, I feel like so, Libby, Libby Nelson. I'm sure you're listening to this because I'm sure you're going to re- listen to this podcast to hear all that you missed. Um, we sure you're in, in quote marks now still stuck on Amtrak, um, but we miss you, uh, and we will be reconvening next month for our. Our next higher ed happy hour. And you'll notice, yeah, you'll also notice how fact free this was because it's the we were yeah. lacking our explainer. We didn't we didn't have our explainer, <laughs> our person who actually diligently reads everything. Right. As opposed to the explainers. I think I think what it said was <laughs> So um, thanks to all of you. Thanks to John Williams who has uh, uh, sat here with us the whole time. He just gave us a thumbs up. Recorded this session even though New America's recording studio was uh, packed up and shipped to our new office a week ago. Nonetheless, he made it happen. So thank you, John. Thank you, Andrew. And to all of you listening, we will see you next time. Cheers. Cheers. Thank you for listening to this New America podcast. This recording carries a Creative Commons Attribution 4.0 international license. Music thanks to Silent Partner for their song, George. To learn more about New America, please visit us at newamerica.org.